Digital Data Stories number eight. And I'm here, Enrico, together with Moritz. Hi, Moritz, how are you? Hola, doing well, thanks. And we have a super special guest today. We have Jeff Hare with us. Hi, Jeff. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing well, thank you. Okay, great. So I don't know if I really have to introduce you. So Jeff Hare is a professor at Stanford currently. And I think he's very well known on the, let's say, on the web and the blogosphere for uh, being the inventor of several information visualization toolkits, starting from Prefuse, then to Flare, and then to what's next, Protovis, and uh, finally D3 with Mike Bostock, right, Jeff? That's right. So Protoviz and D3 were work that I was uh, lucky enough to get to pursue with Mike Bostock, okay. who is my PhD student here at Stanford. Okay. How is it going? What are you doing? Can you tell us what are you currently doing? How is, how is, it, how is this, the whole, this whole thing about visualization developing in your group? And what's next? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of the work we've done in the past, which is focused on a variety of things, you know, visualization tools, as you mentioned, but also, you know, uh, studies of human perception and also visualization techniques. For example, I've been interested in animation in the past. I can say we're still interested in all of those things, but I'd say one of the wonderful things about being a professor is that you get to work with a team of students. And so this is allowing us to kind of branch out and explore even more areas. And one theme that I've been particularly interested in is not looking just at visualization, which typically concerns itself with, you know, taking data, finding ways to express that visually that are effective, where effective means people can solve problems faster, or communicate stories well, all of that. Um, still very important, but I've been trying to understand the role of visualization more largely in the life cycle of data analysis. Um, so for any of us who work with data, we know that it's a really, you know, iterative, often tumultuous process where you know we have to deal with issues of well how do we find data how do we assess the quality of that data um, how do we shape it to meet our needs how do we use visualization as well as statistics and other tools to gain insights and then of course how do we share what we learn um, whether it's through creating images or telling stories etc this entire process um, is very interesting and involves combining lots of different activities um, so certainly things with from databases from machine learning as well as visualization and I'm really interested, um, and my research group as a whole is interested in figuring out, well, what's the role of visualization interaction techniques throughout that process? Yeah. How can we make people more effective and, and, and go about that process uh, in ways that are more successful? Yeah, great. I remember a few, uh, I think it, it was a few weeks ago, I saw this presentation from you in Constance when you came, and I was surprised by the title you gave to your presentation, which, if I remember well, was interacting with data. And I, I was really interested by this idea of putting the accent on the interaction part more than on the visual part. Is that on purpose? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's on purpose. I think the main... The main goal with that is to contrast maybe an old-fashioned notion of data analysis as sort of dry number crunching to really realize that the activity of data analysis, not just any one step like computing a correlation, but really working with data and engaging analysis is highly interactive. And so it really wasn't in any attempt to uh, kind of obscure visualization as an important component there, but really to 
to kind of put the onus on this highly iterative, highly interactive process in which, you know, importantly, I think visualization plays a critical role throughout all of these tasks. And I think what's very interesting is to think about some of the ways that we can use visualization that are really valuable, but maybe aren't always the ways we think about it. So for example, you know, many of us are interested in visualization as an end product, but I have many colleagues, you know, whether they're in statistics or machine learning, natural language processing, um, you know, at the end of the day, like, their goal might be to create an interesting model or algorithm. But even for that end goal, visualization can be incredibly helpful for you know, assessing results, uh, making sense of data quality, um, seeing if your models even make sense. Um, you know, all of these tasks, I think, are really interested and also interactive in their own right. And so it was kind of understand that process that led me to really think about this as, uh, you know, with, with interaction as, as one of the key phrases. Yeah, yeah. I think this is really interesting. And actually, uh, it reminds me of something I always have in the back of my mind that I think visualization is very, so the way it is presented on the web is, is pretty much centered around using visualization as a communication tool. But in mm. academia, we have such a larger focus on using visualization as an exploratory tool, right? And um, of course, this is a very broad generalization. It's not always true. But uh, yeah, when you mention people like, I don't know, machine learning specialists who might use visualization to better understand the model and not necessarily using visualization to, to present their results to somebody else, I think it's really interesting. And, uh, but maybe there's not a lot of exposure of this kind of use of visualization, right? Yeah, I think there's... And one, there's a lack of exposure just because I think on the web, uh, some of the more storytelling or artistically oriented visualizations is just, they appeal to a much larger audience. So it's not surprising that that would be more familiar. Um, but I think also there's, uh, for, for folks who maybe are primarily doing machine learning modeling or something like that, they're not going to, you know, they have things that work to get done. They don't have the time to, to design new visualizations from scratch and implement them. And so the lack of, of good tools can also be an impediment uh, to be, people to be able to pick up and use visualization for tasks where ideally the visualization should let you get it done really quick. So if you're losing hours or days to just get that visualization, it's defeated the whole yeah, purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think having, having good tools um, that really fit the task is, is a key component in, in really making visualization effective uh, for, for, for throughout this data life cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also really always appreciated your, your sort of wholesome approach there. Um, you also, I think, brought up in the academic world this whole topic of data wrangling and, and dealing with the dirty <laughs> dirtiness of data, right? Because um, often in academia or in visualization, to me, it seems that people assume there is this perfect data set already out there and you're just concerned with mapping it, but mm -hmm. that there's mm -hmm. a whole process of acquiring the, the right data, transforming your data, um, merging it with other data sets that a lot of the practical time is actually spent on that is... I, sure. I, I liked how you acknowledged that and tried to provide a good tools for that, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, this, this observation really just came from from pain mm -hmm. and personal <laughs> suffering that I think anyone who works with data can hopefully you know, readily attest to. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, you look at all the you know these these beautiful projects that people have done or these you know really interesting research papers uh, people have published in the area of visualization, and you know, there's very so there's often some very nice results, but 
you know, I've talked to people at conferences and, and found out, you know, well, you know, 60%, 80% of their time was actually spent on manipulating that data to get mm-hmm. it into the place where then it's right for visualization. Um, and so I'm like, well, this is sort of an elephant in the room and maybe we should address it. And, and more importantly, maybe there's some really interesting projects um, that we'll be able to do um, that both advance research, because obviously I'm a professor, so that's something I care deeply about. But also, you know, at the end of the day, create tools that allow people to get their job done more effectively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just as an aside, one of the things that's been really fun in this project for me is that, you know, this is not a new problem. Obviously, uh, folks in databases and statistics you know, have worried about this problem for many, many years. And so they have, um, they've, you know, developed lots of methods. But I think at the end of the day, what's what's been missing is a more complete approach uh, from, from the perspective of interaction and visualization mm-hmm. to make all these different tools uh, available to folks in a way that they can apply. Mm-hmm. Um, because a push-button solution where you're going to have, you know, some smart algorithm figure it all out for you just really isn't uh, uh, very uh, reasonable at this point in time. Um, it really requires human judgment to say, okay, is this is this strange value an error or is this the finding of a lifetime? Um, and so having you know good interactive systems that allow people to transform data, uh, find problems within data, and then manipulate it in ways that allow them to move on with their analysis, whether that's fitting models or building visualizations, I think is a problem that's shared by very many people these days. Let me just briefly mention for those who are listening to the podcast and don't know that there is this very nice tool that you developed in your group that is called Wrangler, that is an interactive mm-hmm. visual support for manipulating data. And I think we will add the link to our to our blog post later. Yeah. And um, yeah, maybe we want to move on to, I'm sure, so before starting this, this new episode, a few weeks ago, when we originally wanted to to do the interview, I posted on Twitter. Uh, I said, "If you want to send some some questions to Jeff Hare, please send send some to us." And I received a lot of questions. I'm not sure whether we will be able to cover all of them. No, for sure we we, we won't be able yeah. to cover all of them. <laughs> but we definitely got a lot of questions about previews, Flare, Protovis, D3, <laughs> and I think I think. The, the first question that many people have, including myself, is can you briefly tell us what's the story behind, behind so many doing, making so many different toolkits? How did you go from previews to, pre, to Flare, Protovis, and D3? It would be nice to know at least the story behind that. I'm sure you have a nice story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. So, yeah, it's really uh, a story with, with two main chapters. Uh, and the first chapter was while I was a graduate student at Berkeley. And uh, actually, even prior to that, I had been working with folks at Xerox Park. And, you know, over time, as many of us do, kind of building up a set of routines for visualizations. And, and over time, I began to try and organize it um, into a library. Um, and when it was in a shape that was kind of, it was ready for its initial commit into uh, subversion for the, the, the code sharing repository. And I was uh, listening to music at the time. I was in the office uh, with friends, and we were listening to the artist Prefuse 73, who's an oh, electronic real? musician on, uh, <laughs> on Warp Records. And so me and my friend Alan Newberger looked at each other, and we said, well, I guess you are what you eat. So we just named the, the repository Prefuse, because that's what we were listening to. And then with the idea that we might change the name later when we come up with something. And you never do. <laughs> <laughs> and we never did. And so if you, we wrote a paper on it a number of years ago 
where we kind of gave some 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 <laughs> ad you know post hoc you know rationale for why Prefuse was a good name for a visualization tool, but that it it, it was all made up. But did you, can I ask you something? Did you start your thesis yeah. already thinking about creating a toolkit, or this was just not at all? No, this was this was definitely. I was building visualizations okay. and I was seeing recurring patterns. Okay. And so I was then just trying to make it easier to create yeah, visualizations. Yeah, yeah. And then as it evolved uh, and became more and more useful, um, you know, I started to wonder, well, would this be useful? You know, does this make a research contribution? And, and in fact, most people, many people told me it wasn't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, so, and they're like, oh, that's just engineering. You know, that's just coding. Mm -hmm. you know, like, well, where's the big idea? And, and you know, I think, I think those those are useful challenges to have because it's important to be reflective uh, about what you do and what, what are the bigger lessons that you learned. And so I was very lucky to be able to work um, at Xerox Park for a while, including, you know, my managers included folks like Ed Chi and Stu Card. Um, and they had thought a lot about this as well. And so just understanding at a higher level how the sort of the, the abstractions being put in place within the toolkit, you know, actually corresponded to some other theories of the visualization process and how it was really instantiating those. So then arguing from there, something about how, how you, you can conceive of the completeness of the toolkit, et cetera. And so, so then it obviously ended up being um, somewhat successful. Um, and so that was actually, I think it's still my most cited research paper. So for any students out there listening, when people tell you that what you're doing isn't research, um, <laughs> you should listen carefully and then figure out how to intelligently prove them wrong. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah and I so, still think the only real major Java visualization framework out there, right? I mean... Um, there's a number of, of Java frameworks out there, but they think they tend to focus on maybe more tightly scoped parts. Yeah, I yeah. know there's like charting libraries mm -hmm. and there's uh, libraries for graph visualization. Networks, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and I mean, they all they all have um, some, some really wonderful strengths. And mm -hmm. so again, I'm, I'm not dogmatic when it comes to choice of tool. I mean, use what's right for the job. Sure. Um, I don't yeah. think one tool fits them all. Um, so then, you know, so I developed Prefuse for a number of years. And one of the things that was really interesting with that was interacting with the user community. And so if, if for any Prefuse users out there, they probably you know, may remember, if it, depending on when they started using it, a huge difference between the alpha version and the beta version. I basically rewrote the entire thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really in response to that. You know, being a, a written in Java, turns out the primary uh, user base was enterprise uh, software developers in Java, and so it really kind of evolved to, to fit their needs and the and, you know the, that way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually, I got very interested and realized that the web uh, was you know, where visualizations needed to go. Not all of them, but many. So obviously that's that's where the people are. Um, and so if you want to reach audiences and also avoid all these headaches with installation, et cetera, right. you know, the web was looking really promising. Uh, unfortunately, Java applets had, had, you know, while useful, had not, you know, proven to be uh, painless. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I, that's why I ended up uh, beginning to learn Flash. And then Flare was really just an extension of Prefuse, um, really trying to take the, the architectural ideas in Prefuse and see how they fit uh, within the Flash world. And so along the way, a lot of things evolved, and that was just mostly through a conversation with things that the ActionScript language supported versus Java. Though along the way, I did get um, much more interested in richer forms of animation. And so I think that one of the major things that distinguishes Flare from Prefuse, other than just the platform, is that uh, Flare has uh, much richer facilities for animation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and, and so I always like the architecture. Yeah. I've been using it, I, I guess, for two years or so, really intensively, like 
yeah. on every single project and I it always I was never like impeded you know it was I think it's that's, really well designed so well that's yeah. great to hear and I have yeah. to say I mean for me uh, the biggest reward uh, from building any of these frameworks is just seeing the amazing things that other folks come up with um, so for I remember I think the first project I, re I remember seeing from you Moritz was the work you did on the eigenfactor Oh yeah, so, so, yeah. yeah the, that the that publication must be like two impact. or three years ago, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was that was a number of mm -hmm. years ago. It was just yeah. beautifully done, and so mm -hmm. it was. It was. I count that among the the projects that made me really happy because, like, cool. I see this yeah. and I think to myself, I didn't know that you could do this with mm -hmm. the tool. Like, <laughs> 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 so, uh, but that's, again, yeah. that's one of the the really most rewarding aspects of building tools. Mm -hmm. It's just watching a community of folks do do amazing work jeff you um, know that so, that moritz is a big fan of flare and he's still using it quite yeah, yeah, intensively. yeah. so often I, often i will I no start longer, and flare. i no longer use flare so i'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that, that, that you are yeah now the best part i think is that once you have your data structure defined you can have so many views on the same data set and very yeah. effortlessly and i think it's still also compared to the newer frameworks this one is still the most flexible when it comes to this end like once you have your data set up, what can I do with it? And you know, quickly prototyping approaches and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm still using it. Yeah, great. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and so I wrote Prefuse and Flare while a graduate student, and then um, I graduated and I came to Stanford where I joined the faculty in 2009. And uh, when I started is when I met Mike Bostock, who was a, a PhD student who had just recently joined the department. And so we started talking about possible visualization projects and he took my course. Um, and that's really within the courses where the ideas for Protoviz first started, where Mike was looking at um, the approach we had taken with Prefuse and Flare, which, which in some ways is conceptually similar to other work that had been done in uh, both in InfoViz and in the area of scientific visualization, which really kind of comes from a more mathematical mindset where you think about a visualization as the result of this mathematical process and so you want to subdivide mm -hmm. that process into a set of operators that you might combine together in different ways but it's really thinking from the top down from like a, a high point of abstraction you know kind of what's the minimal amount of, of sub abstractions can I do to create all these visualizations um, and I think you know that process works well but one of the things that I found to be true with both Prefuse and Flare was that anytime that I've wanted to do something really unique so not a cookie cutter type visualization, mm -hmm. uh, I'd have to create new operators, which basically mm -hmm. meant mm -hmm. I needed to be an expert in the toolkit architecture um, and have software engineering skills to basically add new building blocks into mm -hmm. this, this set mm -hmm. of components. And so, so, so one of the ideas that, that Mike had that, that got me very excited was, well, can we turn that around? And instead from like this high point of abstraction, thinking down to the result, think about the result. Uh, first and foremost. So really kind of reason bottom up from the actual graphical marks that appear on the screen. And so that led to this notion of protoviz as basically a form of style sheets. So you think about cascading style sheets are a way to kind of, you know, add colors and fonts and you know line widths, et cetera, and all the elements in your web page. Um, can we do something similar where we style data? Mm -hmm. uh, and But to make that work, it can't just be constants like setting colors and spacings, but you have to have functions that map from the data um, and then to the visual elements, whether that's to drive you know, color mappings or layouts, et cetera. Um, and so that was the basic idea that, that drove Protoviz is, again, thinking bottom up about graphics. Um, you know, data visualizations is just being statements uh, that map data to uh, graphical marks. 
And so we thought that that w was nice for, for a number of reasons. One, it was uh, kind of conceptually clean. Um, there, it avoided this you know, huge stack of abstractions that both Freshuse and Flare had, so that we hoped that even if there was a learning curve, once you got that initial learning curve, you'd pretty much know everything there is to know. It wouldn't be like what many uh, people had uh, experiences with Prefuse and Flare where they'd get something working and as soon as they wanted to make it more complicated they have to pull back a layer of abstraction and then pull back another layer of abstraction mm -hmm, and then another mm -hmm. and get deeper and deeper into the guts of the framework. And we wanted to avoid that and sort of had a system that didn't uh, require you to build you know, new components from scratch but that within the, the design of the, the, the language itself you could create just about anything you wanted to do. Um, and so I don't know if we exceeded, succeeded 100% on that goal, but that was the goal that drove us. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think ProtoVis is great for teaching visualization because it's so crystal clear in, in this process of we have some data, um, a part of that is mapped to dynamic properties, other properties are static, you know, some properties might just depend on the index of something in a list. So mm -hmm. it's very clear in, in this regard and all the rest is sort of left away somehow magically. And so I always found it great for teaching just like how mm -hmm. does visualization work? You know, what are visual variables? What are data types? How can mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. transform one into the other? You know, this, this very simple idea. And yeah. But it turns out, yeah, that simple idea has you know some powerful implications. Um, so there's only so much you can do technically within a web browser, mm -hmm. and so. But Protoviz, you know, while the the primary implementation and release was in JavaScript, and it you know you know that was the other thing uh, that was different from Flare, of course, moving from sure. Flash to HTML5, which I think was a you know very uh, good decision in hindsight. Um, so, but one of the things that we were able to do is take the language model of Protoviz and explore it in other programming languages as well. And these aren't implementations that were nearly as robust um, as the JavaScript one, so we don't mm -hmm. really actively produce them, but it allows us to explore lots of interesting research questions. So the fact that, you know, Protoviz has this high-level declarative style of, of specification means we can do all sorts of optimization behind the scenes as well. So mm -hmm. we're actually able to build a Java framework based on the Protoviz language model that was 20 times more scalable than Prefuse. Mm -hmm. And that's because rather mm -hmm. than Prefuse exposing all the guts with Protoviz, you know, you have a clean language and then much like, you know, the databases take your SQL query and try and mm -hmm. execute mm -hmm. them optimally, we can do similar things for your visualization specification and try and make it w much faster. Mm -hmm. And so as a different approach, a different language for talking about visualizations, it provided, you know, a really fun uh, space to explore uh, with respect to, to systems research and InfoViz. And then, of course, at the end of this of this of this saga is D three or data driven documents, um, and this this was born out of um, our experiences, you know, over two years of um, of Protoviz use, um, and quite frankly, really uh, exciting adoption by a number of folks of Protoviz. Uh, we were just able to see some of the problems people had, both at a systems level in terms of um, you know performance issues, particularly with animation and interaction. Um, but also uh, the ways in which Protoviz did or did not fit into people's existing uh, workflows within the web browser. And so uh, D3 made a, a number of decisions. One was it actually got rid of this simplified language of visual marks and instead people bind data directly to elements within the web page, mm. whether that's HTML tags or SVG tags. Um, and this had a number of, of, of nice benefits. Um, so one, if you're already familiar with these web standards, great, you can continue to, to leverage that expertise. It meant you could really easily do things like use CSS to style elements of your visualization. Um, and it also greatly... Uh, 
um, improved performance because there was no longer this middle layer of abstraction that, that the web browser had to translate between. Um, so you could you know, write a statement once, have it generate content on the web page with very little um, intermediary. And so being able to then just be able to select uh, just subsets of your web page and manipulate and update just those made interactions and animations much faster too. Mm -hmm. So, so one I way think of thinking that was about the it, biggest change, right? In Protovis, yeah. or everything had to be re-rendered all the time. Something yep, changes, right. and and D three so, is much more a nested model where you can like just update one part yeah. or a selection of of your tags. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the basic notion of, of D three is of a transform. So every statement is a, a document transformer, mm -hmm. not just a document generator mm -hmm. uh, like, like Protovis. So that was one, one big important change. But the way in which you describe those transformations is very similar to Protovis, at least conceptually. And so I, I often think of D3 um, as taking a lot of the ideas in Protovis, adding in some new ones, and but really trying to make it work for the web environment in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think you know Protovis is kind of more, more kind of conceptually self-contained, where D3 is really trying to just kind of, you know, but fit I mean, itself, you're right. fit itself I think to the reality of exists in an idealized world independent of any <laughs> like web browsers. It's a mathematical thing, right? And yeah, D3 yeah. is much more, again, like deep in the dirty, the, what's really yeah. going on. And you get yeah. to work with the actual elements, you know, being used by your browser. And in the beginning, I remember that sort of, I, I was a bit scared of that because SVG <laughs> is... Yeah, <laughs> it's not yeah. ideally designed and you have to deal with all these things like how all the properties are called and sometimes mm -hmm. your X position is an X, sometimes it's a CX and yeah, who yeah, knows so why and it's like, who we, we lost a, We yeah. lost a number of, of tidier elements in the I move from so. Protovis yeah, yeah. to D3 and, and in fact, I mean, I, 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 sh I should sure that you know part of the story here was that you know when when Mike Bostock uh, was coming up with the ideas for D3 you know I was actually quite skeptical about a, a number of these things just because mm -hmm. I, I saw the trade-offs um, but I think based on his interactions with Protovis users and also just his own you know um, quite formidable design sense you know Mike saw that the you know, this is what was necessary to really take this to do professional level you know, you know, as best as you can do in the browser type yeah, visualizations yeah. with the framework. And so I think there, there are many features of Protovis that we, we remember fondly. And mm -hmm. I think in other language environments would be great to bring back, but to really, to really make this work uh, in the web in a way that not only integrates with web standards, but also allows you to use any of your other web-based tools or frameworks that you're used to using. So really kind of be a good citizen in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, in the long run, uh, so far, I think time has shown that, you know, Mike's design decisions there were, were some good ones to make. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think success speaks for itself in this case. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was personally surprised because I think D3 among the four is the is by far the most successful, right? And and if you compare D3 to, to the others, I think that technically speaking, it's the one which has the highest learning curve, right? I mean, at the beginning when uh, I saw it, I thought that it was too, too low level to be widely mm -hmm. adopted. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. in fact, what happened was exactly the opposite, that a lot of people adopted much more, much more easily D3 than, than the yeah. others. But, but you know what, Enrico? Yeah. Many people know jQuery. Mm -hmm. okay, and when you yeah. know jQuery, you sort of get the logic of chaining things and selecting and, you know, sub-selections, which might not be as natural to you, maybe if you come from a, like, a, a 
bigger programming language background mm -hmm. like Java. Yeah. Also. Mm -hmm. Then you think like, what? What's this? <laughs> Please. So, so I, I have a couple <laughs> thoughts on this because this yeah. is yeah, obviously yeah. something we've thought a lot about. Um, yeah. And so one is you know, the the familiarity of a toolkit or language or its easiness to learn is often, you know, at least in part, very much a function of your familiarity with the programming language yeah, that, sure. it's, that it's written in. And obviously on all the, the, the runtime and the environment, et cetera, that comes along with that. Yeah. Um, the other question I think is really important is there's a difference between time to master a tool and time necessary to put a tool into use. And so I feel mm -hmm. that for mm -hmm. folks, for example, familiar with Java or Flash, you know, for some of the basic solutions, you could take something from Prefuse and Flare, put it in, do some very simple modification very, very quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and with D3, I think part of it is you could do that as well, I think, actually. But with D3, it might be a little bit longer. However, I think one of the things that, that is important to note is that I found that the time to mastery with D3 is actually shorter. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. with mm -hmm. Prefuse and Flare. So I think it has a, a, a learning curve that's very steep mm -hmm. initially, mm -hmm. but once you get on, you know, kind of up to that plateau, then you, are you, you can do a lot. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you, can, you can really achieve a lot in terms of visualization, and you, you know, all, once you're up on that plateau, you know all of the, the primary concepts. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be confronted with, you know, a week later you realize there's a whole other layer of things that you have to learn. Mm -hmm. in order to make further progress. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's, that's been my experience and the experience of the students that I've been teaching in my visualization course at Stanford. Yeah. How, how would you compare now these two approaches? So we have Prefuse and Flare, mm -hmm. which are these more, let's say, the typical Java-like libraries, like yep. trying to abstract a whole domain into its functional parts. And then your program is more or less a specialization of that general knowledge if you want to put it that way. And then we have these more toolkit-like approaches, maybe, like D3 or Protovis, where you create complexity by mm. chaining or nesting simple um, operations. So, so I think about it as Prefuse and Flare are examples of what I would call a component model architecture. Mm -hmm. So you have a set of operators. There's basically a bunch of components and you treat them, you know, metaphorically, let's, we can treat them like Lego blocks. Though they're, they're somewhat sophisticated for a Lego block with lots of knobs and mm -hmm. buttons on the yeah, side. Yeah. But <laughs> you can build, you know, the hope is that then you can chain these blocks together and, and build something wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas I think with Protoviz and D3 are more languages for visualization. Oh, they may yeah. be mm -hmm. as simple as languages, but they're basically providing a grammar for yeah. visualization. Syntax and grammar, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and there's, mm -hmm. and there's, you know, there's been all sorts of really cool projects uh, prior to this on grammars for visualization. So you, mm -hmm. some some uh, listeners might be familiar with Leland Wilkinson's book, The Grammar of Graphics, yeah. uh, which served as the inspiration for ggplot2, yeah. which mm -hmm. is a grammar in the R uh, uh, statistical programming language. And for those of you familiar with Tableau, I mean, underneath Tableau, they call it visql, but it's also basically a generative grammar for mm -hmm. data. Now, what's what's shared about all of those three things is those grammars are high level. And in fact, you make statements about data that get in visualizations and they get translated into uh, you know, working visualizations. Mm -hmm. But those statements actually assume a lot. In some sense, they're ambiguous. Just like human language is ambiguous, they make a lot of design decisions for you. Yeah. And so the goal with Protoviz and D3 was to similarly provide a language or grammar-based approach, but do so at a lower level. Yeah, where that, that ambiguity ambiguity is removed mm -hmm. and you have you know complete control over the design 
And you know, the trade-off there is that means you have to specify more. It may be slower to develop certain things, you know, especially for very quick exploratory graphics. Yeah. Then the hope is then that you know, a language like D3 provides an ideal environment where you might implement something like ggplot2 or something like Tableau mm -hmm. uh, for the web browser. Yeah. Do you uh, see any like any of these approaches being superior to the others, or um, how would you, if you have a new project, let's say a practitioner, which uh, which type of tool would you use for which type of project? Uh, yeah. it's, it's so some one is I mean it depends on on the nature of the project and if I have to integrate with a previous system, yeah, yeah that that would shape my system. But let's say assuming I have a tabula mm -hmm. rasa, so I have a clean slate. Mm -hmm. um, I actually prefer the the protoviz and D three approach uh, currently. Um, there may be some novelty bias there, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's also that I find that the functional uh, language specification just seems to fit visualization really well. Mm -hmm. It just removes uh, unnecessary abstractions. So from a clean theoretical sense, I like it, but but more importantly, from a practical sense, I find that I can build things faster. Mm -hmm. um, now, if mm -hmm. someone d does not find that to be true for them for whatever reason, and they prefer the other tool, then you know more power to them. I'm certainly not. I guess I mentioned before, I'm not dogmatic about this, but uh, for my own personal uh, t you know tastes and experience, um, I like taking you know this sort of grammatical functional language approach to visualization design. It just seems to, one to fit the problem domain really well, mm -hmm. and it also has this interesting property, um, at least the way we've implemented it, where. Unlike Prefuse and Flare, um, Protoviz and D3 are much more forgiving as to how you organize your data. Mm -hmm. um, so Prefuse and Flare are very specific data structures that you have to populate, and all the oh, operators yeah. are designed yeah. with that to, to work with those things. Where with Protoviz and D3, as long as it's uh, JSON objects or some JavaScript value mm -hmm. uh, provided as an array, um, it's then up to you to write the functions that work with that data effectively. Um, and, and from some level, this is a really an interesting debate because you could you could you could look at it one way and say, well, this is silly. I mean, you're 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 totally squandering reusability <laughs> yeah, because yeah. because this only yeah, works and for it this is like that. Data. You have to start you're like, all oh, well, over I can't again. reuse the chart. You mm -hmm. know, this is silly, but. The fact of the matter is, you know, <laughs> and this comes back to the wrangling thing, it turns out manipulating your data is often much more painful than the minor modifications necessary to make these visualization specifications work. Yeah. And so in practice, uh, especially for custom jobs, you know, crafting the, the visualization specification uh, to the structure of the data, um, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps surprising to some, it certainly was surprising to me at the, when we first realized it, was actually more efficient than trying to make all the data fit in one canonical format. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because somehow you have to start all over again. So in my Flare projects, I, I was reusing much more code across projects. Mm -hmm. And now D3 or so, I always start fresh, like blank slate. But then mm. the starting is much faster, of course, because I don't have to think that much. I just start with one detail yeah. and bootstrap the whole thing from that. And and it's much more fun. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's not bad that you have to redo everything, let's say, for this new project again, because yeah. it's easy to do. And you're really customizing it then for this one thing. So, yeah. But it's interesting. I, I, I'm really interested to see how it will play out if people get a bit frustrated with the sloppiness of JavaScript and try to, you know, 
get more library style and more enterprise style again or if this functional approach will, will be in the end the, the dominant programming paradigm could be as yeah. well so well yeah. javascript is is only as sloppy as as, as you make it <laughs> yeah uh, but so far as you yeah. as, as long as you also avoid all, all the things that should never be touched yeah <laughs> like testing for undefined values refer any listeners to, to doug crawford's uh, doug crockford's books and videos <laughs> They want to get up and running with, with JavaScript in the right way. So, Jeff, what, what should people expect? Do you think we will, we will stay with D3 for a long time? Or is there anything new in the horizon and people should get ready to a new revolution again? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually a better question for Mike, um, who's yeah. really the Mike Bostock, who's really the powerhouse uh, behind uh, D3's design and development. Um, I've just been happy to to be along for the ride and to be able to contribute and uh, you know uh, play uh, work through these ideas with him. But would you be comfortable um, with scrambling the old thing again, or? I, I personally don't have the desire to do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I, 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 I'm four frameworks in, I figured that's good. Maybe but, third time was supposed to be the charm. But <laughs> I think a flare is really, you know, is just, you know, prefuse, uh, you know, ported to, to, to flare. So maybe third time is the charm here. Um, <laughs> but no, what, but more to your question, what, what to expect. So there's a couple things. I think, so D3 is about creating a visualization. I think there are possibilities for higher level languages on top of D3. Uh, I already mentioned things like uh, ggplot2 mm -hmm. or you know, language, you know, systems like Tableau. Mm -hmm. I think those types of higher level analytic languages that you, know, you specify perhaps uh, much less code, but is more ambiguous at some level, um, and that generates visualizations that are implemented in D3 for you. Mm -hmm. I think that's very promising. Um, uh, building on that further, I'm actually very curious, not in changing the underlying programming language, but how do we design interactive tools that allow people to create visualizations without having to explicitly write programs? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what what are ways you mean that we through can through a user interface or yeah precisely so imagine you have some some maybe a little borrow a little bit from Excel and spreadsheets maybe borrow a bit from tools like Adobe Illustrator as well as some new interactive paradigms what are ways that through direct manipulation we can begin to specify visualizations and that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that you won't have you know any mathematics involved obviously you might we would want to write formulas and data transformations and things like that but there's probably ways of building protoviz and D3 like statements uh, through interactive manipulation. And so that's something um, some of my students are interested in looking at. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's also, once you have a working visualization, I've been really inspired by this, the types of storytelling mechanisms that folks like the New York Times, yeah, Washington sure. Post, Guardian mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, have been pioneering. And so what are the, the right levels of abstraction and tools that allow people to author stories to share with others? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great so, question too. Yeah, yeah, like how there's no really no authoring tool for these types of data-driven stories at the moment, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, and so and so we actually have, have uh, written a tool uh, for doing this, which we currently call Ellipsis, mm -hmm. um, as in dot dot dot, which is you know a very obscure reference to D three. Oh yeah, that goes around a few corners. Yeah. And so that, I mean, this, this was developed by a student of mine named Arvind Sachinarayan, uh -huh. and so we're excited about that. But it's still in some early stages. Uh, we've been working with some journalists uh, who've been helping us, um, you know, understand it, its strengths and weaknesses and improve it. Um, cool. So hopefully it will appear in a future conference, um, as well as, of course, perhaps more importantly, uh, be released as software for others to use once uh, uh, it evolves enough uh, that it's ready for that. Sounds great. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, these these user interface driven tools. I mean, the 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 holy grail there, of course, is to go beyond that cookie cutter stage where you just fill a template or a style yes, with yes. your data. You know, it's and it's hard to move beyond that. So there have been a few approaches. I mean, Tableau there. I mean, I'm a big fan of Tableau as well, but it's also good for only a couple of things, right? Not not the whole the full spectrum of what you want to do. Yeah. And so I think of for uh, uh, Tableau as two things. So one is it's uh, an analysis tool. Yeah. So you can do yeah. really rapid exploratory analysis, and that's what it's designed yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for putting on a design hat for a moment, I also think of it as a prototyping tool. As it, mm -hmm. I there's a there's a it can't express all of the visualizations you know that I would want to do you know by any means, mm -hmm. but it can allow me to explore the space and that I refine my ideas so that before I move to code I end up having a much clearer ideas of what types of visual forms will work and which probably won't. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think I this like is this, as an enabler. This is pretty much the way you work, Moritz. Right? You mentioned many times to me that you I, I you start that. from yeah, yeah, Tableau, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But I don't really prototype visual ideas in Tableau because for that it's too limited, right? Okay. But I also use it in this very early stage of getting a sense of the texture of the data, of the yeah. distributions yeah. of the data, yeah. Yeah. of the potential combinations of attributes, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just to see, okay, how Absolutely. sparse it, does it become when I cross authors and countries, yeah. you know, and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, that and, and that's primarily what I mean, though. I think mm -hmm. for, for, for some simpler instances, you, you can yeah. get some ideas into visuals as well. Yeah. But I just remember, to get a, uh, a sense of where the interesting things might lie and then... Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I, re I remember I was lucky enough a number of, of years ago, I spent a summer uh, working with Martin Wattenberg, and one of the things that I always really admired about his work, um, among the many things I admire, <laughs> is that he just seemed to have this great knack for giving a mm -hmm. massive data set, picking the two to three variables that just told the richest story. Yeah. So yeah. if I'm going to yeah. take a very complex data set and make sacrifices, I'm not going to be able to communicate everything, which subset do I keep? To mm -hmm. really create a compelling experience, and he just he just seemed to be able to nail that every time. Mm -hmm. And so I try to you know, I, weekly <laughs> approximate that in whatever way I can by going through with Tableau first and finding out where the stories are and the data yeah. uh, before I commit too heavily to any one particular implementation effort. Yeah, I, I mm -hmm. personally believe this is one of the most important skills for a visualization designer. I think I mentioned that several times in the podcast as well. And paradoxically, mm -hmm. it's not about visualization. I mean, the most important thing is what features you choose to, to visualize, right? Yes. And, uh, yeah. and it's hard, it's really hard because you don't want to get rid of, of stuff, at least at the beginning, but you have to go through this painful process where you have to admit... You I have cannot, to kill your darlings. You have to kill, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh. yeah. Um, so maybe we want to move on to the next topic I have on, the, on my list. Um, yeah, since you are here and you are a very well-known researcher in the area of visualization, I want to take this opportunity to ask you something about the relationship between research, industry, designers, and so on. And I received, I have to thank Benjamin Biderker, who is a friend of us, who sent a lot of questions about this specific topic. I want to read you uh, out loud, maybe a couple from him. They are somewhat similar just to introduce the, the topic. He said something, he asked something like, how does he close, he is, is you, Jeff, how does he close the gap between practice and research? Or scientific papers have long been the medium of discourse in the scientific community. 
Unfortunately, designers are not trained or used to writing papers and thus their work is, is often not reflected in the scientific community. How could this gap be bridged? Should it? And so on. I think this whole set of questions are really interesting. Maybe you want to comment on that, Jeff. Yeah, actually, I th one of the things that's really fun is that we're in an exciting time where I think the, the opportunity for research, industry, design, et cetera, to be in conversation with each other has almost never been richer. Yeah, I um, agree. Yeah, it, it's always, you, one always gets proven wrong when making statements like that, but I'll run with it for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in any Be case, the, um, yeah, so, so how do I close the gap between practice and research? Well, I release a lot of software and my students release a lot of software. And so that's probably been the, the, how we've had the, the most uh, interaction uh, with practice is that we build tools that many practitioners use. Um, and so I'm, I'm a strong believer in, in open source software and making tools available. Um, I'm not a, a zealot in terms of that, but I think it's just a really important way to realize the practical impacts of research. Yeah, but uh, I think that's a, a structural issue because I, I can totally see you're doing that and that's so great, but the problem is somehow you don't get to write a paper on how you fixed a few <laughs> few bugs that your practitioners were asking for, you know? Yeah, so no, I think a, this is a, for a PhD a student it's a problem, isn't it? I mean they should focus on their papers and the all these practical I, issues. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's a that's a, a concern and mm -hmm. it, it it has to be you know, addressed intelligently, and I'll give you just a quick anecdote of one example. Uh, when I was initially uh, working on on Prefuse, um, you know, this is many years ago now. Uh, I was very active on the support forums, yeah. and I, I tried to answer questions as quickly as I could. And I think early on that was important. But as you might imagine, as you're alluding to, this gets uh, exhausting. Sure. Um, and at one point, I'm problem. just too tired. Yeah. I'm just like, I can't do this right now. And so I stopped answering, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not entirely a video, just for like a day or two. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, creating that space allowed other people to step up mm -hmm. and start mm -hmm. asking the question. I realized, like, how long have I been doing all this work unnecessarily? <laughs> and also, you know, curtailing the opportunities for others to, to get visibility and take on leadership roles in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, to be, and to be to be honest, I don't think I ever did a particularly wonderful job at cultivating um, you know, a, a sustainable uh, open source community around those tools. Um, but I, certainly there's ways that you can do that. And I think we've been more successful with Protoviz and D3 in that we do have lots of contributors who are helping fix those bugs. Um, but at the same time, it's also, you know, Mike spends a ton of time on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah and it's yeah. a big, it's a big commitment. And so and you just have to throttle really your built commitment. Around him, I, I, at the end of the day, it's a, you have to make an informed decision as, as a, mm. if you're going to, if your primary goal is going to be research, you just have to scope it and say it's so that you can release software and just give it a disclaimer. Um, but by making it open yeah. source, if there are other people who can use it and contribute back, you yeah. know, it may improve slowly, maybe just in a couple fits and starts, or with enough shepherding, maybe have a, a, a long-term life. These are all possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. getting real-world uh, feedback and seeing people use your software, one is, I think, a very valuable reward in its own right. But even if you're going to be myopically focused on research, what people do with the tool fuels research ideas. Even if it's not around that specific project, mm -hmm. it will fuel an idea for a new project. Mm -hmm. um, you'll just see how people stumble on something. You're like, oh, wait, well, that's an interesting problem. Like, why do people have such a hard time coming up with a good color palette? Um, yeah. I might, that might not be a prefuse problem, but maybe, yeah, you know, no, maybe it gives point. you some insights yeah. on how to 
better approach, uh, you know, tools for, for crafting, uh, you know, color mappings, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's important. I think there's also another side to this that I, that I want to jump to because I think it's also important. I think researchers have a lot to learn from, from practitioners. I agree. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and my, my, my personal experience, what always I mentioned earlier, what blew me away is what um, journalists, artists, and others have been doing with storytelling mechanisms. Mm -hmm. around visualizations. And so um, a student who had worked with me here at Stanford, Eddie Sagel, uh, wrote a paper with me where he just looked at what folks at the New York Times and other outfits are doing and then try and organize that and look for recurring design patterns. Uh -huh. And so in this way, people are exploring this space. And so, um, you know, one way that I think academics might help is that we might have the time and maybe, you know, certainly we don't have the deadlines of, of a newsroom, uh, which helps, um, but maybe also kind of a, a, a different perspective that might allow us to think about what practitioners are doing and engage in a discussion that we both can benefit from. And I really hope, and I know others are working on this, that we have a much higher representation of, of folks in the analytics industry and also, you know, visualization designers uh, coming to our academic conferences and participating in those conversations. I know we're trying to create, you know, new attractive venues for folks to come, but we still have a long way to go. And so we really love to get feedback from folks in the, in the community uh, of practitioners on how to better forge connections between these groups. I think that's, that's a key point, trying to have events where academics and practitioners can meet and discuss and show each other what they are doing. I think that we don't have that right now, and I think we are moving some initial steps uh, in this direction, and for instance, in the this week conference this year for mm -hmm. the first time, but, but we, have a, we, are, we have to do much, much more, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I see more and more of these activities. And at the same up, time, so, there are yeah. there are events that are more centered around design and or industry, and mo and normally people from uh, and normally academics don't participate to this kind of events. Mm -hmm. So it's it's both ways, right? Sure, absolutely. No, no. Yeah, it's just different. Yeah, it's different types of scenes, different types of let's say day-to-day -day work and uh, but both could definitely profit a lot <laughs> from more dialogue that's for but sure. But it's true I mean yeah. I want to stress again what what Jeff said I mean me being myself more an academic kind of person and going to several conferences every year I'm, I'm always surprised I mean now maybe I'm no longer surprised but I used to be very much very surprised to see how many beautiful and complex things skilled designers can do. And I've never seen mm -hmm. such a good quality in any of the visualization conferences <laughs> I attended. This is, no, it's true. This is part thing of the reason why I started <laughs> blogging and participating to this whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Because I, I really thought about, man, we can learn something here. At the same mm -hmm. time, I think we can teach a lot, but we can also learn a lot. I mean, and, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, yeah. and I totally Lots believe in this kind of, uh, I don't know, yeah. communication that we need to have and to, to put in place. Yeah, but yeah. I wanted to ask to Jeff something related but different. Uh, I am sure you are aware of the endless debate on the web between people who are more orthodox, people like us who come from academia. I've been... In several comments in my blog post, I had people saying, oh, you are an orthodox coming from <laughs> academia and just saying that you have used color and length for this and that and never bend the rules. <laughs> and then you have these overly crea creative designers who come up with stuff that you can cannot even read. And then we had several times. I, I'm, 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 I'm sure you know 
things about Stephen Few publishing this quite harsh blog post about I don't know fancy designer and and stuff that is not mm-hmm. really proper. So what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I've never heard the, the McCann list of it. Yeah. <laughs> there was interesting about that. I was surprised McCann didn't get more take was that some of the folks in the design community who I respect to no end uh, were quite merciless on that particular McCann list design team. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I th- so there's still. I mean, so I think I think at the end of the day, this is um, you know everyone loves a good drama. And it's fun, I think. But I don't think anyone disagrees that both function and aesthetics are important. Yeah, I mean, sure. That, of that, that's, I mean, I, I think to, to say otherwise is, is a straw man that's, I think, mm. easily dismissed. Um, and certainly that's Stephen Few's take and that, that's everyone else's take. But, but people have uh, very different points of emphasis. And I think where those different points of emphasis often emerge is because people are trying to achieve different goals with visualization. And so if we end, if we, if one jumps into a, a debate without first having common ground as to given a particular visualization design effort, what are we trying to achieve? Yeah, yeah. And I know that, you know, I've had long conversations with Steven about some of these issues and I know <laughs> he's, you know, talked to folks in the area of business intelligence where his understanding is that the primary goal is to understand the data in a way that you know, reflects what's really in the data and informs a certain type of decision making that avoids people making mistakes that might, you know, mm. cost lives or lose money. But that's and, not and always when, the case, when that, right? When that's your when that's your framework, obviously things that exaggerate or perhaps lead to slight, even slight or sometimes gross misinterpretation of the data can be seen as a big problem. Mm. And so he ha- he's very loud because he's targeted towards that specific community where he sees like if 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 he thinks if wrong ideas. Um, you know, sink in, then, you know, it can do a lot of damage. Um, now, now uh, some people might be debating, it might be coming from a very different perspective and, and trying to design in a very different environment where, you know, I certainly think there's there's value in having things be not just, you know, aesthetic, but, you know, evocative, you know, one, because you're trying to communicate, so you're evoking the concepts that you care about, you know, that's an important design attribute, but maybe also to, to, to uh, get people's attention. Um, like what if this is an important issue? What is it something that you will be able to pull a reader in, and then hopefully communicate, you know, other information effectively to them to help them make a decision? And so I think, you know, I've also seen debates of this uh, on other blogs as well. You can see you know, statisticians talk about this. I don't know if you follow Andrew Gelman's yeah, blog, I do. but these yeah. issues come up as well, where I just see a kind of a rampant misunderstanding of what InfoViz yeah. is, just because everyone seems to have a different definition. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and so it's but, not that any single definition is wrong, but it's certainly, you know, but it, it they're they're different. There's different goals, and I think being very clear about what the you know what is a successful outcome for a visualization? What are you trying to achieve? And then picking the the methods, the visual encodings, um, you know, you know the, the appropriate level of rigor, etc., to achieve those goals is important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I'm really interested in is so the at the moment we are sort of jumping a bit b- between these sort of different purposes, like exploratory purposes or more explanatory, simpler mm-hmm. visualizations, complex visualizations. I think everybody's still figuring it out. And mm-hmm. so, for instance, the thing I've been doing for a few years is this really highly customized visualization for one data set that is really like high-end, but only for this one purpose. The, or maybe Ben Fry, Martin Wattenberg, you know, these types mm-hmm. of the style of working. So on the one hand, very exploratory, but at the same time, very much focused on one issue. Do you think these things will be around in five years still, or will we move towards more, let's say, 
um, more, yeah, more different types of approaches. Well, I don't know what to contrast it to. Um, I, I certainly, I hope it is there five years from now. And in fact, um, probably more developed. Mm-hmm. I think one area that I think is exciting, I think one, one way, maybe if you don't mind me twisting the question a bit, is to say, well, where will these types of, of designs and technologies show up where maybe they're not mm-hmm. showing up now? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so right now you have, you know, maybe for, you know, for, for, for activism or for corporate sponsorship or for any number of reasons, you know, or journalism, you're seeing some interesting interactives primarily on the web. And, you know, there's, you know, as an educator, you know, um, and also science fiction fan, I've always been really interested in, you know, what's the textbook of the future? And I'm not alone in this. For example, my, my yeah. colleague, Pat Hanrahan here at Stanford has a, has a research project around this. Um, but how do these types of interactivity uh, and, and engagement uh, around these very singular important issues, whether, whether that's, you know, global development trends mm-hmm. or that's, you know, the, the fundamentals of modern physics, um, we should be, have these sort of interactive experiences to be able to understand them, interrogate them, understand what it means to make different modeling assumptions, et cetera. And so I like to see those types of, of custom designs applied in education. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that would do be really exciting. Do you refer to stuff like, do you know these explorable explanations from Brett, Brett Victor? Victor? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that's one of the examples yeah, I have Yeah, that's a really mind. fascinating, so for bringing fascinating that up. Yeah. direction of development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think there is a place for visualization there, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, and uh, I have uh, another bunch of questions about current developments in visualization. And mm-hmm. do you maybe, do you have an idea? So I got some questions regarding why, why do you think visualization is so interesting now? Why, I mean, we all agree that it exploded during the last... I would say one year or so. Why now? What what is happening? Do, do you have any idea about that? Sure. I I don't think it's, it's particularly insightful. It's just <laughs> if you if you if you track a bunch of trends, they all intersect right around now. And mm-hmm. so, what do those trends include? So, not obviously, data has been growing for a long time, but it's not only is it is it just growing the accessibility of data. And kind of the you know the, the 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 diversity of people interacting with with data is at a, at a kind of an interesting spot. And meanwhile, the abilities of web browsers to you know you know provide a visualization you know hit the right spot. Um, and so I don't think it's actually an issue of tools. I think it's an issue of you know you know both the the, the audience uh, for data and the the technology in terms of the browsers. Uh, which is the main vehicle for communicating stuff, are in the right place. And so once you have that, people are going to build the tools to realize on that, that, that possibility. Um, so Yeah, but at the same uh, time... We have lots of data. We <laughs> have to do something with it. And our, our mainstream media outlets in the forms of web browsers are now sophisticated enough to enable us to present that data in new ways. Yeah. And so I don't think it's particularly surprising that a large variety of folks are taking yeah. advantage of that. But I, I'm personally fascinated by the fact that, I don't know, me coming from academia, if we take the, the whole area of data analysis, we have several branches that historically have been dealing with data, like databases or data mining, mm-hmm. stuff like that, which historically are much bigger than, than InfoViz or visualization in general, right? But if you look at the web and uh, how people perceive data analysis at large, the layman, visualization is much more much more successful and powerful in a way, right? I don't know if you agree with me, but 
if you look, well, I think from, they, I think those technologies um, enable each other. So yeah, I think sure. you have like kind of a multiplication effect amongst them. So yeah, uh, I'd hate to do visualization in a world without databases, <laughs> um, or, or maybe I'd love it because then I could invent databases. And <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, there's a lot to it, and I mean, there's basically there's two ways of dealing with this big data issues is the one is really good algorithms and really good black boxes like you know google where you just type in one word and the algorithm finds the best match or you do something where you empower people actually to to find themselves what what they're looking for right mm -hmm. and and so i think this is a lot of where a lot of the attraction of visualization is coming from that it sort of it empowers us again and doesn't <laughs> like give us this feeling of we can't do anything about this whole big thing. Well, the thing I've always loved about visualization is that, you know, feel free to disagree, but I think fundamentally visualization is not a technology that it's about answers. It's about yeah. questions. Yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree. So if I can go to Google and type something in and get the answer I'm looking yeah. for, that's yeah. great. Absolutely. I mean, that's something, but it's, okay, I ask a question, I see, you know, some kind of answer or some kind of response in terms of the data and a visualization, but I see it in the context of everything else. I see the things that I didn't expect, and it, it, it causes me to form new questions and new hypotheses, and it's that, it's that sort of contextualized uh, exploration of data that allows me to ask smarter questions, which has, mm -hmm. for me, always been what has been so attractive about visualization. Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, I think that's really, I fully agree with you, Jeff, but at the same time, I think this requires a whole kind of mind shift in a, in a whole set of different branches. For instance, I think in science, lots of scientists are more used to start from an hypothesis and then searching for the data to, to, to check <laughs> to whether the yeah, either support or reject this <laughs> exactly. hypothesis, right? And recently I started... Um... No. Yes and no. Yes I, and I, mean, no. I, I think that's the way we write about science. Mm. I'm not convinced. I mean, I, I, you, all experiences under the sun have probably been had here. But I think in many cases there, there are questions. You have a hunch. So you get some data to see, is this hunch worth following further? And yeah. then it turns out your hunch was wrong, but another hunch that's slightly related to it does yeah. have promise, yeah. and you follow that. And then when you write the paper, you talk about, oh, you know, this, this hunch was, you know, we had this, and we ran this study, and we got this result. And you don't write about all the trail of dead ideas <laughs> that got you there. Mm -hmm. And you don't even talk about the set of pilot studies often or other kind of smaller prototypical activities that allowed you to gauge the successfulness of that. And so I think there's an interesting separation to be made between the process of science and the rhetoric of science. Yeah, yeah. And sure. I, I, I both exert, you know, influence. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and um, so let's talk briefly about the future of visualization. So where do you think we are going? I don't think we're leaving the web. <laughs> I think that, I think, um, you think this internet thing is gonna stay? I think the internet thing's working out pretty well. Uh, I hope it continues to do so. Certainly, I think the uh, there's an interesting point now where I would love to be able to design in something similar to like the web browser type environment and have it work on a variety of devices. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you can get a D3 visualization working on, on the iPad, and that's great, but it's very difficult to make it feel as smooth um, as, a, as a native app. Sure. Um, so certainly, I think all the, that, you know, new technologies and new interfaces will certainly play a role. Um, there will probably, for different input modalities, you might have to, you know, 
shift how we do things. I don't see these as big challenges. I'm not even, you know, I'd like there to be cool research questions there, but I actually haven't been able to convince myself that there are. I think there's a really important work for practitioners to do, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe interesting research questions as well that hopefully others will, will figure out. Um, where is Viz going? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think understanding the life cycle of data analysis, this, this notion of interactive data analysis I brought up earlier is, I think, uh, I don't mean to be self-serving, but since I'm you know, putting a lot of my effort into that, you know, it's because I think that's where Viz should go. Yeah. Um, really understanding, you know, um, and that means, you know, w- one thing that's been really fun for me being within a computer science department is looking for the ways visualization uh, can fruitfully dovetail with other subdisciplines within computer science. So how does combining visualization with statistical modeling help us understand those models better, maybe arrive at a good model more quickly, or combining it with data- database techniques allow us to clean data and, and get it ready for analysis more quickly? I think there's lots of, of interesting challenges along those lines. Um, um, more broadly, I think, you know, I guess what, for lack of a better term, I'll call the consumerization of visualization or mm-hmm. you know, within, within the field, what we've called visualization for the masses or casual mm-hmm. info biz. Mm-hmm. I think that's just going to become more and more important. We're already seeing it in journalism. I think, you know, the, the types of, of data resources that everyday people, have, you know, sorry, what people have to work with in their everyday lives, whether it's just their music collections or their movie collections, or as we begin to track more and more of our own health data and stuff, just we're going to have so much data about ourselves, our friends, our families, you know, our vital statistics, et cetera. Um, so I think that means many more consumer-oriented visualization displays. But I think to be really empowering, it also requires better and better design tools that allow people to manipulate and um, explore their data in ways that you know another designer may have never envisioned. Mm-hmm. And so whether that's through, you know, I don't know the level, I don't know what the right level of sophistication of those tools should be for different audiences, but certainly ways that allow people to express creative visualizations uh, with a, with a minimum of programming seems like a, a good step to take in that direction. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting because I mean, what one thing I'm sort of wondering about is that there is no integration of visualization on maybe on operating system level yet or mm. into big web products. So neither Google nor Facebook nor Mac OS X for that matter have a visualization component, you know? So do you think this is just it takes a while still? So we are so far ahead sort of that the, the yeah. sort of the mainstream yeah. software market has to catch up. Or I don't is there a fundamental a, sort of... Um, I'm, I'm not convinced it needs a this component. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting idea. Um, yeah. I don't mean to, to discredit it. I think uh-huh. that's worth exploring. Uh, I would like them to have a data component uh-huh. yeah. that is easy so to access. Better, because yeah. I think that the web browser, you know, while it could be even better, mm-hmm. uh, is in many intensive purposes a visualization framework now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about the, the, the fluidity of data. Uh, and, and, and you want to be able to grab that data and transform it yourself and, and mm-hmm. put it somewhere else and compare it to yeah. other data yeah. and so on. Yeah, that's, that's and, an And so if you, have, yeah. if you think of the operating system as more kind of a, a, a services model level, mm-hmm. um, then great, as long as I can you know, open a socket and get data into yeah, my web yeah, browser. Yeah. And then hopefully then also be able to talk back 
to other systems. So I think that's one other thing too that um, we all realize but don't always talk about as much, which is visualizations obviously very powerful output devices for, for people to make sense of data, but they mm -hmm. can be incredibly powerful contextualized input devices too. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So so thinking about you know how we use visualizations to gather data um, mm -hmm. uh, is, is actually kind of interesting as well. Um, both for people, but also actually for scientists. We've designed tools like that for data entry, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, often it's still seen as a viewing device, right? And not mm -hmm. as an action device. And I, I also believe this, especially with new touch interfaces and so on, a big potential for like making expressive tools for people as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it, the other thing I just want to answer your, your finish answering your question, Enrico, about where yeah. Viz is going. One thing I, I haven't touched on yet is kind of the more theoretical side yeah. of information visualization. And so, uh, though I haven't talked to about them much today, a number of the projects in our group are focused on um, uh, issues of perception and cognition. How do we study that? How can we build better models of you know what happens when you look at a visualization? Um, what sort of, of, of guidelines uh, can we provide that help aid visualization design? I think it's important. I don't want to say we want to automate it completely. We don't want to create you know, rules you know, of the sense that you must follow these rules. But I do think understanding the, the nature of, of, of perception and cognition can help us gain guidance to um, really you know, make reasoned uh, trade-offs and choices as we explore different design ideas. And so I think, uh, I think it's a very important area for visualization research. And also one I think was, will continue to be a rich and at sometimes contentious conversation between uh, research and design communities. Yeah, mm. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I personally believe that it's really surprising how visualization has been developed in academia because we had, a, I don't know, we have the, the fathers of visualization who spent quite a lot of time and, and thoughts thinking about what's the best, the, the most basic theoretical things, especially connected to perception. And, mm -hmm. and then we had this, this long time where we basically have been developing tools after tools and techniques and stuff like that. And I think only recently we started really, we, we started thinking about going back to the basics and really thinking about what's the connection between I don't know the, the basic principles of visualizations and how they connect with uh, mm. with perception and stuff like that. And I think we still don't have enough yeah. of that because if when when you look into the basic guidelines we have and the basic understanding of human perception we have, it's it's a very rough set of tools in my opinion. I mean yeah. it's very solid, but but it's at the same time I think it's limited. There is a lot. A lot to explore and understand there. Oh, there's just so many questions to ask, and mm. we're still trying to get the right kind of research instruments in place. So mm -hmm. I think, for example, uh, crowdsourcing is one really amazing and powerful instrument. You know, you can run studies at a speed and a cost, yeah. that, um, mm -hmm. yeah. and with a diversity of, of participants that mm -hmm. in the past would, would be you know hard to fathom. Yeah, or once you time, have a certain audience, you can do also A/B <laughs> testing, like present two alternatives to one part of your audience and another mm -hmm. alternative to another part and just right. see what happens, you know, how yeah, that changes their behavior. And this can right. be very powerful. Yeah. But I think about all the, the cool visualizations that are being put out there and you know, all the work you know, from journalistic shops, you know, yeah. all yeah. of that usage data is results of uh, basically you know, a live experiment. 
Yeah, yeah. And there may not have been like, you know, variables manipulated. So it might be hard to draw contrast. But mm. you know, to do A B testing, as you describe, be very interesting. Um, to be able to maybe in the future get things like eye tracking data or know where people yeah. were spending their time looking and, and what the perceptual effects of different elements were. But also to try and get at things that aren't just, you know, how long did I spend on the site or, you know, how accurately did I compare one bar in a bar chart to another bar. Um, but really, it, it, there's ways to get a sense of what people are learning, busy figuring out, you know, what are the right types of questions to mm -hmm. ask participants? What are the types of measurements? Um, we still have a lot to learn um, and a lot to learn from other disciplines, including psychology, about how to do this well. Um, yeah. But I think, and, you know, especially when we start looking at larger audiences who aren't just analysts, um, it's really important. Yeah, and, and we are still in a very preliminary phase where we are trying to develop the tools that will help us to better understand visualization. So even the tool set is not defined yet. Right, mm. I think this is what you mentioned. What you wanted to say, Jeff. I mean, this. Yeah, for instance, we have tools. Track, we need more. Yeah, we need more. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, okay, I think we can almost stop it here. Um, I wanted to mention something before finishing. I cannot remember. <laughs> um, yeah, Jeff, I wanted to ask you. We have lots of listeners who are people who. I would say visualization novices, they get excited about visualization and they really don't know where to start from. You are a professor, I'm sure you are in, in contact with many, with many students who just start understanding what visualization is and maybe they get excited about it. So do you have any suggestion to people who get excited about this but they don't really know where to start from and even if they want to go through, I don't know, some academic curriculum or stuff like that, what, mm -hmm. what are the options for and what do you suggest for novices? Well, I think first and foremost, what I tell people to do, if you're interested in visualizations, then make visualizations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and, and do, hopefully in a way you can also get feedback from people. Uh, that's an important part of the learning. But so what I say, well, people say, I'm interested in visualization. And I say, well, great. What data? Yeah. Has, well, what data is <laughs> just having you scratching your head? You know, <laughs> yeah. what's the question that you're dying to know the answer to? And then, mm -hmm. and then sometimes people, you know, they go, no, I just liked pretty pictures. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's great. But you might want to, you know, you, I don't, I don't know if you want to take my class, <laughs> but, uh, but like, you know, what, what is it you, you want to learn? Like what's something that you're just passionate about or exciting or what's something that you saw that you learned something new? Like, yeah, I think it's, for me, a lot of the visualization is about the, the, the thrill of discovery and the thrill of learning. And this is true of both exploratory and also communicative stuff. Like, well, I love communicative visualizations because they, they teach me something that I didn't know or they give me a perspective on an issue that I didn't have before. Um, and so it's finding interesting data sets um, or finding a data set that you, you already saw visualized and you thought was interesting. Well, how, how would you redesign it? That's a great way to yeah, start. Someone already I found agree. an interesting yeah. story. Tell that same story in a different way. Or can you tell a different story with that same data? Um, and you don't have to have a deep technical skill to start here. I mean, you can you can draw it by hand if the data set's small enough, or you can manipulate it in Excel and at least start playing with it there. Um, you can use tools like Tableau, um, Many Eyes, and a number of other free visualization tools. Um, and then eventually maybe start designing your own, whether you want to use Protoviz and D3 or use processing or, or whatever whatever framework you're excited about. Uh, you know, I think the you know, practice of, of building visualization is the most important. And then um, once you start to get that going, you'll want to couple that with some of the more theoretical and conceptual aspects of the field. And, and for that, I recommend looking at uh, different academic curricula. I think are still websites for classes on the web are probably still the best place to look for that.
Yeah. Uh, this so, reminded uh, me that several people asked, asked uh, whether you will ever give a course, an Infobiz course on Coursera or something similar. You know, I don't have any current plans to, but mm. I would love to do that eventually. I yeah, think I am. Yeah. I think I, I'm. <laughs> I think I'm a little shy <laughs> I totally because I think yeah. because I think there's like as there's a copyright nightmare in the making. <laughs> to put that but but assuming we we can get past that, I I would yeah. love to do that. And so yeah, I can't cool. I can't make any guarantees as to when that might happen. But it's certainly something I would be very excited to do. <laughs> great, great. So and before finishing, I would love to mention that you told me when you visited Constance that you are going to open a startup or, or open already a startup. Do you want to, to tell us something about it? What, what is it about? Sure. So we are nominally in stealth mode, so I won't say too much, but uh, yeah. the, the name of our company But you company know, here we is... need some scoop here, me and Moritz. Yeah, okay, <laughs> but no, it's, 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 but it's not secret either. I know okay. the name of our company is, is Trifacta. Okay. Um, and it's uh, the, the, the notion is uh, we had this idea of an analytic trifecta. That's people, data, and computation. And so mm -hmm. we basically want to build tools to make those three things work together more smoothly. Mm -hmm. um, and this is with uh, my co-founders, Joe Hellerstein from Berkeley and Sean Candle from Stanford. Okay. And so we're really interested in these aspects of manipulating data, you know, sort of data wrangling we talked about earlier, as well as other parts of the process. And the main goal is to be able to build tools that make working with data a really interactive experience as opposed to just you know, writing code in an editor. And mm -hmm. not only interactive, but the ability to really work with data at large scales. And so that's, that's the teaser I'll give you for now. Yeah, Keep your eyes peeled. Great. We'll, we'll have more yeah. uh, hopefully uh, uh, coming out in the coming months. So do you plan to develop any tools that will be available on the web and people will be able to play with? We'll see. We'll see. Great. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know, Moritz. Do you want to ask something else, or we oh, can? Oh, I'm 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 happy. It's it's been a great. It's conversation. been a great conversation. So, uh, yeah, of course, yeah, we yeah. could continue for another forever. Forever. No problem, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, thanks a lot. It it was great having you here. It's it's fantastic. I think it was a really nice episode. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a blast talking with you both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so much. Very cool. Thanks a lot. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Have fun. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.